The first few days after Harry leaves, Louis can't believe how quiet the lighthouse is. It's like he's forgotten somehow. How much time he's spent in this building on his own in the past. It's like he's forgotten how to have one-sided conversations with his dog the way he used to. A stream of consciousness leaving his mouth without shame, with no expectation that someone will reply. Now he keeps expecting Harry to pipe up with some clever or not-so-clever line. Every time he babbles in Clifford's direction, there's a part of him waiting for Harry's comment, Harry's laughter. Some terrible joke Louis would laugh at only because Harry looks so cute telling it. But Harry's gone, and there's an empty space haunting the building where he used to be. A loud absence that Louis tries his best to ignore, tiptoeing around it like that will make things better. Louis is fine, though. He doesn't cry himself to sleep every night or anything like that. He doesn't mope in bed, wasting the days away because his suitor left him. Sure, maybe he's taken to sleeping in the room Harry rented, cuddled up against Clifford's body, so he doesn't feel too alone at night. But that doesn't mean he's not fine. Sure, he might have not washed the sheets yet, scared of getting rid of Harry's fading smell, but that doesn't mean he's not fine. He knew what to expect, after all. Knew all along it would come to this. Harry never made any promises he couldn't keep. He didn't leave Louis heartbroken and feeling used. They knew what they were doing all along. Knew how ephemeral the two of them were doomed to be. It's fine. So what if, five days after Harry's departure, Louis has the crushing thought that he's probably in love with someone he can never have? It hits him while he's washing the windows outside the lantern room. He's out on the gallery, the big sponge in his hands, squeaking against the glass as he makes big circular motions, not thinking about anything specific when the overwhelming yet obvious realization that he's in love with Harry and he can't do anything about it pops into his head. The overwhelming yet obvious realization that he's already lost him to life and their mismatched circumstances. That he's never going to get the chance to tell him. He loves Harry. What a useless, elating feeling. Louis drops a sponge as soon as he thinks it, and it falls back into the soapy water at his feet with a splash. He's too dazed to notice, though, too focused on the way his heart expands in his chest until it feels like it won't fit anymore, too full of feelings he can't hold in. He presses his palms against the windows he's just cleaned, needing the support to hold himself up. He exhales shakily as he presses his forehead on the glass, waiting for the dizziness to pass. He inhales deeply, then exhales slow, controlled. Then... He does it again. The wind whistles around him. It's probably loud, Louis thinks vaguely, but it comes across as faint and distant. He blinks, eyes wet. Louis blinks and he breathes. He waits and waits, but the tears don't come. Grief and love, both stuck in his throat with no outlet. Maybe he's not so fine after all. Still, he tries not to let those newfound feelings affect him too much. Harry left. There's nothing Louis can do about that. All he can do is try to keep himself as busy as possible so the place in his soul where he's aching doesn't get to thrive too much. So he putters around the B&B as normal, 
cleaning up all the rooms except Harry's and ordering supplies in bulk for the new season. His next guests are coming in less than a month, and Louis' establishment has a reputation to maintain. He's a bit mad at himself that he got through almost all of his maintenance tasks, though, leaving him in need of a lot of creativity to keep himself occupied. He has to do quite a lot to get the small voice in the back of his head that wants him to curl up and indulge in his devastation to shut the fuck up. Still, he buzzes in and out of the cottage, making sure everything is okay, waking before five o'clock every single morning and going to bed way past one every single night. He sleeps fitfully and he knows he's probably going to crash, but he's running in a high of denial and as long as there's energy in his body, Louis is going to use it. It all comes to a halt ten days after Harry's departure, five days after Louis has realized he was in love with him all along. He wakes up sad that that morning, but he shakes it off, reminding himself viciously in front of the mirror that he's fine. His reflection just blinks sleepily back at him, dark circles under his eyes, and he looks aged. With his beard untrimmed, he finally looks like the hermit his extended family claims that he is. It took years for him to get there, but he finally did, and he almost wants to send them a selfie so they can laugh at his complete and utter misery. He doesn't, of course. He gets dressed in silence and then goes for a run with Clifford, leaving his phone on his dresser, unable to bear the thought of listening to music Harry carefully selected for him. When he gets back to the lighthouse, he feeds Clifford and gets to work. By noon, Louis is forced to admit he's got nothing left to do except clean up Harry's bedroom. He goes through the motions, taking the sheets that smell like him and Clifford by now, more than they smell like Harry, off the bed with gritted teeth. It's all right, Louis tells himself as he bunches them up and throws them in a laundry basket. It doesn't matter, he thinks as he strips the pillows off their cases and puts them on top of the sheets. He saves the duvet for last, holding it to his chest and closing his eyes, inhaling deeply as he searches for a trace, a hint, of the man he's trying to learn how to live without. Don't be stupid, Louis tells himself unkindly, taking the cover off the duvet and throwing it in the basket too. By the time he's made it to the basement and has put everything in the washing machine, there are tears streaming down his cheeks. He sits down, back to the wall, arms wrapped around his legs, forehead pressed to his knees, and waits. He listens to the loud rumbling of his washing machine, breathing deeply in the dark. It'll pass. He knows it will. Like most sorrows, one day he'll wake up finding himself able to breathe again. Until then, though, he has to endure. When the cycle is done, Louis hangs everything up to dry automatically, trying his hardest to keep his mind blank as he puts everything on the washing line that stretches in his basement. Once that's done, Louis gets back upstairs and makes his way through the corridor leading to the tower that goes straight to his bedroom. He opens the closet, grabbing a black travel bag, dropping it on the floor in the middle of his room. Then Louis starts randomly packing clothes, grabbing whatever is nearest and clean, mostly sweatpants and comfy tees. It's impulsive and probably a little stupid in his state, but he can't bear the sight of the lighthouse any longer. He doesn't have any reservations until mid-April, and he'll be damned if he spends the next few weeks roaming the building aimlessly while pretending to be busy, like a ghost, trapped on earth with unfinished business. Every single corner of his home is full of memories he's a bit too fragile to confront straight away. He'll be fine. He is fine. 
He just needs a distraction. He needs something to keep his mind occupied until the B&B starts buzzing with excited tourists and their chatters. He needs a break from the quiet. The quiet that used to be his salvation, that Harry cherished so much. It's filled with absence now rather than comfort, and Louis knows it won't always be this way, but for now, he needs some noise, needs cacophony to keep his brain away from what he's missing. There's only one place on earth that Louis knows of that can provide exactly what he needs, so he's done packing his bag. He grabs his phone and dials Roger's number. Leaving Fair Isle is always a bit of a gamble between the temperamental weather that makes them inaccessible for days on end and the ferry and flight schedule being so sparse. Louis is determined, though, and he knows the good Shepherd Four is dropping some goods tomorrow morning. Weather permitting, he'll be on his way to Shetland in less than 24 hours. The next morning, Louis locks up the B&B, double-checking every window is safely closed and locked before walking to the marina north of the island with Clifford in tow. They wait patiently as Roger unpacks the boat and chats with locals before climbing the small ferry. He's waved off by the last few friends who are awake and near the port, and Louis doesn't know why he thought his spontaneous vacation would go unnoticed. Still, soon enough, him, Clifford, and Roger are well on their way to Larrick. Louis can't explain it, but the minute he's off the island, it's like his chest expands and he can finally breathe. Fresh, salty air filling his lungs deeply as Fair Isle becomes smaller and smaller. Thankfully, the weather is kind enough, and while still rocky, the journey isn't too bad, and they make it to Shetland in good time. Louis is used to it, of course, not likely to get sick, but he's glad to get back on ground as he hugs Roger goodbye. He's only got an hour to kill before his ferry to Aberdeen, so he grabs a meal deal from Tesco and eats it by the sea. He calls his mother just before boarding, revealing to her that he's on his way, and while the connection is shite, the line crackly between them, the shriek of joy that comes out of her mouth seems to indicate she's excited to see him. He's staying for at least a week, he reveals, putting some effort in faking joy, not wanting her to worry, and she starts babbling about all the fun things he'll get to do with his younger siblings while he's there. He cuts her off when she starts planning menus for him, laughing sincerely this time when he assures her that she doesn't need to go out of her way for him. The ferry to Aberdeen takes around 12 hours, so he won't be in the mainland till past midnight. He's hardly going to be in the mood for a night bus down to Yorkshire, so he quickly books himself a room in Aberdeen on his phone before buying a ticket for the earliest train to Doncaster the next morning. He could have planned this better, probably, but Louis doesn't care. He was too eager and too desperate for anything else. Louis reads the two novels he's brought for his vacation on the ferry, and by the time he's in his hotel room that night, he tosses and turns, unable to fall asleep. He must doze off at some point because an alarm wakes him up at 5 a.m. and he swears under his breath, pushing Clifford's body gently off his before stumbling into the bathroom for a piss with his eyes half-closed. They get to the train station with 30 minutes to spare, grabbing a tea and a pastry at Greg's before waiting for the LNER on platform 3. His mom mom picks him up from the station with his youngest siblings, eyeing him suspiciously when he stays kneeling on the ground, both arms wrapped around the smallest twins for a beat too long, moved beyond words at the way they've grown in the months he's been away. He's seen them in pictures that he's Skyped, but it's different seeing them for for real, the way they've changed while he looked away. 
He blinks away tears of too muchness before wrapping his mother in her own hug, feeling some restlessness in him subtle when she squeezes too hard. She can probably tell there's something wrong, after all. She always could, but she distracts Ernest and Doris away from Clifford and leads them all to the car without asking. She gives him small, subtle, concerned glances on the drive home, but she lets the twins babble about the various things they've been up to and doesn't say a thing. Louis Loon learns all about his brother's piano lessons and his sister's new best friends as he nods and awes appropriately. It's Monday, and most of the rest of his siblings are still in school when they get to the house, so they eat lunch, just the four of them. Louis, already helping his mother make spaghetti as soon as he drops his bag in what used to be his, then Lottie's room, and is now more of a guest bedroom than anything else. Half the family is missing, but the meal is loud and messy, just like when he was a kid, just like he needed. Louis basks in the comfort of it all, in the knowledge that Harry hasn't crossed his mind once since he saw his mum, his brain too distracted by everything that's happening. The twins try to feed Clifford pieces of meat from the spaghetti sauce, and their mother reprimands them, while Louis laughs until she starts reprimanding him too for letting them get away with it. Louis has missed this. He's pretty exhausted from an intense two days of travel, but he does his best to stay awake. First, he helps his mom with the dishes before they all settle in front of a kid's show he's not familiar with to fold laundry together. Back in the day, Louis knew every single kid program on the telly because he spent so much time babysitting his sisters. Now, he doesn't even own a television, and he indulges in Netflix on his computer only very rarely. It's strange to think about the way his life has so dramatically changed through the years. He loves it, though, despite the longing for a hairy-shaped body in his bed. He loves his life. By the time they get through the laundry, the girls have come back from secondary school, shrieking in the entry as soon as they spot Clifford running towards them. Louis gives his mother a look, and she shrugs. Didn't want to ruin the surprise, she admits as the girls spill into the living room, jumping on Louis and play fighting to figure out who gets to hug him first. He distracts more than helps while his sisters do their homework. When his stepfather gets back home, everyone pitches in as they prepare dinner together. It's even louder and more chaotic than lunch. It's perfect. After dinner, Louis can barely keep his eyes open, and Daisy keeps pointing it out and making fun of him as they do the dishes, but he fights sleep as long as possible, wanting to enjoy spending time with his siblings as much as possible. He puts the younger twins to bed, reading them a story and doing all the voices, heart twisting painfully in his chest as he remembers doing the same for Harry time and time again. He sighs and closes the book once Ernest and Doris are both asleep. It feels like he's missing something new about Harry every time he turns around. Louis is powerless to stop the feelings, though, so he just goes back downstairs, wrapping himself in a blanket with a mug of tea as the rest of the family settles in to watch a documentary about Scottish wildcats. Clifford is sleeping comfortably at his feet, happy to be petted by both Daisy and Phoebe, who are sitting on the floor on both sides of him. Fizzy is most, mostly texting from her arm, armchair, but once in a while, she'll stretch her legs to poke Louis's shoulder in what he knows how to read as affection. When the documentary finishes, Dan puts on another one, but at the halfway mark, people start trickling out of the living room to head to bed. Soon enough, it's just him and his mother yawning in front of the telly, which, of course, is exactly what she ambushes him armed with motherly concerns and good intentions. So, 
she says, and any hope Louis had that this wasn't going to be a serious conversation vanishes at the tone of her voice. So, Louis echoes, keeping his eyes fixed on the documentary. Jay mutes the television pointedly, moving from the armchair in the corner to Louis' sofa suddenly next to him. Are you going to tell me what you're doing home? Jay was one of the first people in his life to fully support his move to Fair Isle. She was the first person he told, back when it was nothing more than an impulse, a burning desire bright in his chest that he couldn't extinguish no matter how much he tried to talk himself out of it. She understood somehow when he told her he felt like he belonged there. To his mother's credit, she never told him no, never said it was a bad idea. She never shied away from telling him how hard it was going to be, but his mother is not the kind of woman to discourage her children from following their hearts. Whether it means loving someone of the same sex or fucking off to a remote island in Scotland. In Louis's case, both. She's proud of him. He knows that. She tells him any chance she gets, reminds him how much she admires him for all that he's accomplished. And yet, she never stops calling Doncaster as home, never stops seeing his returns to Yorkshire as homecomings, no matter how many times he calls Fair Isle his true home in front of her. She doesn't quite get it, he thinks, even though she says she does. Still, a lifelong habit Louis had stopped trying to break her out of a long time ago. Can I visit? Louis asks with a shrug. There doesn't need to be a special reason. Jay hums. It's just for fun, Louis lies, even though they both know he's going to spill at some point. I don't know if you remember, but I didn't come home for Christmas this year. It's been ages. I can barely recognize the twins. (laughs) Which ones? Jay jokes, and he was talking about how much Doris and Ernest have grown, but Daisy and Phoebe are becoming little women too, leaving childhood behind way quicker than Louis would have thought. Still, he laughs. I do remember, Jay continues seriously, and when he looks up at her, she doesn't look particularly amused. I miss you when you're away. Of course, I know you've missed Christmas because of work. And I also remember you saying your winter guest was leaving mid-March, and here you are, right after he's gone, looking sad. So please, don't try to bullshit me about some last-minute holiday before the season begins, honey. I know you too well. Louis's face falls, and he closes his eyes. I'm okay, he says on an exhale. He hears his mother sigh. You know, she begins, and he opens his eyes just in time to watch her wipe away a solitary tear. All those years, you lived all alone, so isolated, but I was never worried. I was never worried even when everyone told me I should be because you've always looked so happy when you come home. You've always sounded happy on the phone. When you called yesterday, you didn't sound happy at all. And when I picked you up this afternoon, you looked even worse. Okay, Louis simply says. He sighs, a long, tired exhale that comes out from the depths of his body. You're right. I'm really sad right now. He admits, voice cracking on the admission. But I came here to distract myself and stop thinking about it. 
I don't want you to be worried, but I just, I really don't want to talk about it. Not right now. You get that, right? Jay reaches for him, wrapping him into a hug that has his back cracking. You're my son. I love you. I'm never not going to be upset that you're sad. But if you don't want to talk about it, of course, I'll respect that. Thank you, Louis says into her shoulder, squeezing her tightly right back. I promise you it's, it's nothing that won't get better in time, all right? They separate, Jay looking deeply into his eyes, surely trying to read his soul the way he, she's always magically been able to. Are you sure? Louis isn't. He doesn't know that this love is something that he's, that's ever going to fade and go away. But he's hoping, praying, that it'll fade a little, that one day it won't be as tender when pressed, that the bruise, while still present, won't throb the way it does now. He has no guarantee, but he can hope. So he nods. <laughs>